You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. I think Harry would like me to leave. I don't think that's necessary. I think Harry thinks it is. Harry thinks if you call him Harry one more time, he's going to make you eat that cat. Gene Hackman. Is Harry Mosby. Hello, Harry. In Night Moves. Oh, come on, take a swing at me, Harry, the way Sam Spade would. He's a private investigator. My daughter, Delhi. Would you believe Delilah? Well, she's gone. How long gone? Two weeks. Go find her. Making a living. Well, let's say uh, 125 a day in legitimate expenses. From other people's lives. You can get cheaper. Can I get better? You're hired. Making a mess of his own. God, you're really prime, Ellen. You know that? I can't you screwing another guy and you attack my lifestyle! Your lifestyle has nothing to do with it! Night Moves. It's a mystery. I'm looking for Deli Grasner. Deli isn't around here anymore. Where the suspects are also the victims. I want to know what I walked into. Ask your wife. Well, are we going to talk about it? But it's your ball run with it. Where the questions... All right, what's it all about, Mosby? Is there still much uh, smuggling going on around here? The dogs have fleas. Where were you when Kennedy got shot? Have too many answers. <laughs> Every clue is a lie. I've been listening to your ping-pong talk long enough. What was in Marv Elman's plane? Drugs? Was it drugs? Night moves. Check. Check. Ah, it's a beauty. It's a game where every player is a pawn. Harry Mosby. Every move is a wrong one. And the winner loses everything. I want to know what it's all about. I told you what it's all about. You, what the hell are you all about? You're asking the wrong question. Gene Hackman in Night Moves. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Rob St. Mary. Just trying to lose those awkward teenage blues. Also joining us this week, the head honcho of the Cultural Gutter website, Ms. Carol Borden. Hi guys, thanks for inviting me. This week we are looking at the 1975 neo-noir from director Arthur Penn and writer Alan Sharp. It's Night Moves, starring Gene Hackman as Harry Mosby, a private dick who's who's not such a sex machine with all the chicks. In fact, his wife is stepping out on him and he seems to be content working the lower rungs of the detective game. He sets out to find a missing girl and ends up embroiled in movie-making mayhem. We're going to be getting into spoilers big time as we talk about Night Moves, so if you haven't seen the film and don't want things ruined, go ahead and track down a copy. It's really worth your time and money and worth your while. Come on back after you've seen it. We will be waiting for you. Now, Carol, as our guest, when was the first time you saw Night Moves, and what did you think? Um... Man, I don't know. I think it must have been the late 90s. I think it didn't make a very strong impression on me at first, but it's a film that I find I think about a lot. And I've been thinking about it quite a bit since I've seen it twice now, since you asked me to come on. And it's a really strange film. How about you, Rob? Well, this is the first time I saw it. I didn't even know it existed, uh, <laughs> to be quite honest. Uh, Arthur Penn, I had seen some of his stuff. Uh, Night Moves, obviously, being from the Detroit area, when you said Night Moves, I go, oh, is uh, uh, Bob Seger 
So that kind of threw me off for a second. But once I got into it, I was like, yeah, this is really interesting. And, and I thought it was a really well done sort of story and it works on multiple levels. And that's, I think, part of the reason why, as you were saying, it being kind of a rich experience is when you uh, kind of take it apart. There's more going on than just this guy trying to figure out this mystery. Yeah, Night Moves, originally called The Dark Tower, which uh, should not be confused with the Stephen King book series, The Dark Tower. This is The Dark Tower as in like a chess piece, and Night Moves as in a play on K-N-I-G-H-T moves, and there's some discussion of Night Moves in here. And if you want to think about the movie as kind of being a big chess game, that's absolutely fine, because Harry's kind of bouncing back and forth between... California and Florida, you might think of that as the two halves of the chessboard if you want to. This film's got a lot of stuff going on in it, and like you guys are saying, it's one of those where you can watch it on the surface and get one viewing of it, or you can kind of dig a little deeper. I'm hoping to unpack it a little bit when we talk about it in this episode, because, yeah, for me, there's a lot of stuff going on. Arthur Penn is a very interesting filmmaker, and he's one of those guys where the more you look, the more you're going to find stuff. I mean, he uh, really knew what he was doing. So let's talk a little bit more about the plot. I mean, it's really kind of a basic Cherche la Femme kind of thing. I mean, there's two mysteries going on if you want to think of it this way there's the mystery of harry's marriage and what's going on with his wife which he kind of falls into accidentally he goes to meet his wife for a movie they're going to go see uh i think it's my night at mods uh, i get it mixed up because in the script it's one thing and in the in the movie it's actually something else one of the things that's interesting about the use of that at my night at mods and i haven't seen it but i did look up the plot summary on it on the eric romer film is there's this discussion of eric romer and eh, it didn't work out so well last time i saw his stuff and sort of staying away from it i saw a romer film once it was kind of like watching paint dry but the film has to do with infidelity and relationships and things like that so it's kind of interesting is as you go on in this film that's also what this film is about too He's married to the actresses, Suzanne Clark, who uh, most people know from Webster. And it's kind of funny, there's a little line in there. He's uh, Harry's looking at some Colombian artworks or whatever, and um, he, he talks about how they remind him of Alex Karras, which fits for Harry's past profession. He is a former football player, so he would be very well-versed with Alex Karras, only to find out in real life a few years later, Alex Karras and Susan Clark would be married, and they would be two people who are raising Emmanuel Lewis on Webster. So kind of a weird life-imitating art thing as it goes along there. And also a Detroit connection, because Alex Karras, of course, played his career with the Detroit Lions. Gene Hackman playing a football player... I guess he could be a football player. He's not built like what I normally think of as a football player, but he could be one of those positions that they move around very quickly, very um, stealth-like, I suppose. But uh, yeah, I, I'm not familiar enough with football. If there's a football metaphor going on in this movie, I'm not picking up on it. He does start to toss something like a football, but I actually have to wonder how successful he was as a football player. 
Yeah, definitely an ex-football player now, and it's interesting. He's been offered positions with this guy, Nick, who's played by Kenneth Mars, who most people will know as uh, being the crazy playwright from The Producers and so many other things. But, of course, that's the first thing I think of him in, and he is much more content rather than – Working for Nick, and Nick is this you know kind of more high tech private detective has a firm and all this kind of stuff. Harry's much more content to be working these lower rung cases, you know the divorce cases, the finding missing girls kind of things. And this is really kind of some scraps that Nick is giving to Harry when it comes to that case. That's not an agency. That's a information factory. I'd go bananas there in one week. Going back to the first case, it's kind of Harry's own case, finding out who is banging his wife and why that is. And it's interesting, he doesn't approach his wife about it. He goes right to the other man, and there's a great scene between him and Harris Eulin, who plays this Marty Heller character. And uh, there's uh, a line in there where... Eulen says, uh, I'm beginning to get you in focus, Mosby. And I've noticed that there's a couple times in the movie where these like big lenses on windows. Like I thought it was just in Eulen's apartment, but then they're everywhere. Even at Harry's place. Yeah. It's just kind of crazy how these things are all over the place. So it's almost a little bit of a relief for Harry when he is sent on this other case to find this missing girl and that for me like there's a a scene where he meets this woman arlene iverson who's played by janet ward where it it felt very very typical noir kind of thing where you've got the woman who's hiring this man for this case and there's all this kind of like sexual overtones going on in here and you know at one point she's talking about her breasts and how she you know had this work done and all this kind of stuff and oh i had lovely tits even if i do say so myself Ah, they're sitting on a little bit of silicone now, but when they were up for grabs, they were really something special. It feels very, I don't know, it's a different dynamic than something in like a double indemnity, but I was getting that same kind of, you know, um, Barbara Stanwyck kind of teasing and playing with Walter Neff a little bit when it came to this. And Arlene could be seen as a femme fatale, but it's like there's so many femme fatales in this film. She's like the aging femme fatale. She's Norma Desmond mixed with General Sternwood to me. I could see that. He just needs to meet her in like the hothouse. Yeah, yeah. And then they have the two crazy daughters, although um, the other two femme fatales aren't actually their daughters like they are in The Big Sleep for General Sternwood. But it's Paula and Deli, basically, are like Vivian and Carmen. Though there can be kind of like a weird sister relationship that you can almost read into it, yeah. since they're both sleeping with the same guy and stuff, and yeah. there's this father figure thing. There's a lot of incest going on yeah. in this film, whether direct or implied. Yeah, a new world of unsavory. And speaking of unsavory, here's our good friend James Woods showing up as Quentin, the mechanic. And he's kind of our entree into the mystery because we have Harry kind of going from almost man to man trying to find Delhi because Delhi is leaving a lot of men in her wake. She is very sexually liberated. She's only, what does it say? Is she 16 in this film? She's 16. And she is 
is going through men like crazy. She goes through Quentin, who's an auto mechanic, and then there is Marv Elman, who is a stuntman, and that kind of leads us to Ziegler, this guy, Joey Ziegler, who is, is, I can't tell if he's a director or if he's just, he's the head of the stuntmen, correct? Yeah, I couldn't tell if he was a director or like a stunt choreographer. But he's on set, and it's interesting, they have this, um, it's this 1920s film kind of thing, and I had read that Penn was actually in line to be, or he was considered for doing The Stuntman, which takes us all the way back to the very first episode of The Projection Booth when we were talking about The Stuntman. And it's interesting because in this film, it's very much the film within the film of Night Moves, this movie that we see being shot, or at least some of the stunts being shot, look like they could be out of The Stuntman as far as the planes and the era of the planes and the era of the cars and everything definitely a, a 1920s vibe i think uh ziegler even says at one point we we're doing this keystone cops gag very much sets it in that same world of the stuntman which is also very you know hollywood looking at itself and also very norma desmond again like the era that he's they murder delhi and is that era and while um i don't think arlene was show, doing films at that time I feel like it's another reference to Sunset Boulevard in a way. I mean, it's probably not, I think reference might be too strong a word, but it's evocative of it. Harry's there working the Delhi case, and at that point, and Delhi is short for Delilah, so take with that as you will, Delilah being the uh, person that helped uh, cut Samson's hair and rob him as his strength. He's Delilah is one of the major femme fatales in the Bible, so <laughs> we can definitely say that. Harry is going from man to man, finally goes down to Florida to meet up with Delhi's stepfather, Arlene's, I think, former husband or still husband. I mean, there's definitely, Arlene is another person that goes through men like crazy. There's even a line that Nick, the detective, says at one point about... Where do you know Arlene from? From way back. Oh, yeah? What's your name again? Ziegler? Joey Ziegler? Joey Ziegler. I don't think you were one of the names. What names? One of those you cheated on Grassner with. I got them all. I'm one of a small select group. We hold meetings in a telephone booth. Ziegler wasn't a name that was on a list of people that Arlene had had cheated with her former husband with. So there's a long list of people that Arlene has gone through, and now Deli is kind of cutting the same swath through all of these different guys. And she really, she seems, and I know Harry actually catches on to this, that she seems to be sleeping with the same people that Arlene is. She's kind of getting revenge by sleeping with the same people that her mother had slept with, which is kind of a fucked up way to get revenge. Yeah, and it also gives her, like that, not your view, but the view of the people around her gives a lot of agency to a 16-year-old girl. Like, she has clearly learned this act of revenge, not just from her mother, but from the men around her mother. She's 16, and so they're playing a lot with statutory rape and the age of consent, but she's still a kid, and the only one who really treats her like a kid is Harry. When we find out that her stepfather has been sleeping with her, that scene is just amazing. And yeah. there's some great camera work going on in there. There's a really nice rack focus when we're on Tom Iverson and he's talking about... Harry, you're a pretty straight guy. 
and I'm going to tell you, I want that kid to hell out of here. You see, I, uh, I got pretty foolish with her, and I, and, well, you've seen her. God, there ought to be a law. And yeah, when he says there ought to be a law, and there's that beautiful rack focus to Hackman to sing. There is. I love it. I love that bit. And it's great because it is such an uncomfortable moment, but they film it in such a great way. Yeah. You know, we were talking about the stylization in here, and one of the things that I noticed, especially in the first I don't know, 20 minutes or so, is that there really is no fat. This thing moves really fast. And one of the things that kind of pointed it out to me was the cut from the antique shop right to Arlene's apartment. It's just, bam, you're there. There's no establishing shot. There's no setup. It's just he's having this conversation in the antique shop. Next thing, he's over here. So the the feeling I got was that he was just rolling this thing on. He was just, bam, 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 just, you know, in terms of the, uh, the, the style of the cutting, in terms of the style of the... Of, of the way that the story is told visually. It's just, it moves pretty quick and it's a little over an hour and a half and there's a lot that's in here. So he doesn't waste any time. If Arthur Penn is known for anything, he's known primarily for Bonnie and Clyde, which was very evocative of the French new wave. And it was kind of that really, I wouldn't even say a dotted line, but it was very much the direct line from the French new wave to the American new wave the the new hollywood as it were and you look at something like the way that the death scene in bonnie and clyde is cut and that mm-hmm. was very the the use of the jump cuts and everything just beautiful kind of stuff and that is very much the same kind of thing that he is doing with this film and you know in his previous films i mean taking a look at something like a little big man where you see this incredible life story of the dustin hoffman character and just yeah it it moves so quickly as you're going through each one of these episodes and you know we're getting a hundred years of this guy's life condensed into like a two-hour movie so this the cutting in night moves is definitely uh, has that same breakneck pace. The, and I think that's one of the reasons too, why when we look at this film, it kind of like the first time you see it. Okay. Yeah. I saw this movie. I get what's going on, whatever. But then the more time you sit with it and take it in, the more that there is to kind of take apart and you get to, pick up the patterns because otherwise it's kind of throttling you a little bit. It's just like, Hey, here's a story, bam, bam, bam. And then you're, you're done. And it's strange because there is so much and it doesn't feel like there is like the first time you see it, it seems kind of not slight, but, but very straightforward. And the more times I see it and the more I think about it, the more there is to it. It's funny. I went back and I read a lot of the original reviews that were coming out around this time in, in 1975 for this film. People knew it was a good film, but they didn't necessarily get into the reasons why. And there were some people who were just like, yeah, this movie, it's going to get pushed to the side fairly easily. And it did end up getting pushed aside quite a bit because it was shortly after this that Jaws came out and pretty much changed the landscape of American films. But yeah, this uh, it's funny to read some of these reviews and, and some of the reviewers are like, yeah, this is kind of an ugly film. There's not a lot of style here. Everything is, is really bright and it's, it's a neo-noir that doesn't have any shadows. That was the thing that was funny about night moves is I'm like watching it and I'm thinking to myself, 
it's not a lot of scenes that take place at night. It's mostly during the day. I'm like, why is it called night moves? And it's funny that you said that the it should have been with a K as in night, as in chess. But I just kept thinking of the title, and I'm like, there's a lot of daylight in this movie. Yeah, some of it's almost blinding. Like when we first see Delhi, some of that light is just overwhelming and coming off of the water and everything. But there is so much style to it. I mean, when you look at that that scene when he meets Delhi, we have him meeting Delhi right after he meets this woman, Paula. And Paula, I guess you could say she is our main femme fatale in this, though you don't really necessarily know what's going on with her. She's a very cryptic character. But when we see shots of her, when we see Delhi, she's behind all these clothes. She's hanging out clothes. And when we see shots of Paula, at least for the very first little bit, after we get back over to Tom Iverson's house, it's almost all through windows and framing through windows, through screens. There's a part where she's up in a window handing him down a drink, and then shortly thereafter, he's opening up these Venetian blinds, lifting up these Venetian blinds, and looking at her out through a window. And there's a lot of screens going on between them. And to me, that's a very interesting stylistic choice. And I don't see this as being style neutral, the way that some of these reviewers were kind of complaining about it, or or just, uh, you know, kind of slapdash. You know, Rob, you talk about how there's no fat on this. And some reviewers were complaining about that just saying like oh there's nothing to this film it's just so quick and dirty and there's no style to any of it you know we're we're not being there's no mood being evoked in this kind of thing but i i I think that they needed to look a little bit further into that and even when you think about like when we first meet paula she's hiding a little bit she's hiding her gender a little bit she's wearing this uh the hat and she's got all of her hair tucked up under it. You know, she even makes a joke about, you know, you thought I was bald, right? And when she takes Harry uh, to Tom Iverson's house, she basically coats him in a literal smoke screen. She, you know, says, my car is burning a lot of oil. Follow, you know, don't follow too closely behind. And she's just, you know, spouting off all this uh, smoke at him. And that's really the way that her character is, is just, you know, she is always kind of throwing him either one-liners or half-truths, just never really giving him the whole story, which is kind of interesting because, and she is the one that calls out the most that he is being a detective. You know, she says a few times, you know, why are you asking me all these questions? Are you asking questions because that's the thing to do? Or are you genuinely curious? You know, are you doing this because you're a detective or do you really want to know about me? And there's a great exchange I think the most famous exchange in the film where she asks him Where were you when Kennedy got shot? Which Kennedy? Any Kennedy. He gives this really thought out response and is going on and he's like, you know, why did you want to know or whatever? And she's like, oh, that's just something that people ask each other because everybody knows the answer. And it's just like, bam, shut down. Sorry, Harry. And then it takes her a little bit before she answers her own question. And then as we go along through the film, it's like, I wonder if any of that was true. Because almost everything that she ends up telling us seems to be a lie. I think it's interesting, too, because she's almost a reflection of Harry. Like, she does a lot of the kinds of deflection that Harry does. 
but he does them with his wife and with other people about why, like exactly what she asks him, why are you doing this thing? And the one time that he answers anyone honestly and vulnerably, it's with her. And then, yeah, she shuts it down like he shuts other people down. He's not very truthful either. We find out later in the film that he has told his wife this whole thing about how he has gone out. He's a detective almost from birth. One of the first things that he did was to track down his parents. He had didn't have his parents, so he's looking for them. And apparently, really, he was only looking for his father. Because the story that the wife has seems to be that you were looking for your parents and you ended up spending a week with your father and all this. And the truth comes out that basically he found his father. He saw his father reading the comic books. He you know, was kind of staked out watching his dad move to be about what, six feet away. I think he says at one point he watches his father reading the comic books, silently mouthing the words to these comics or comic strip, I should say. And that, and that's it. He thinks that his father is just a sad little man and he walks away and that's it. So he found his father, but he never made that connection and Harry making that connection going that six feet is something that he doesn't do very much with anybody. And he seems to be alone by choice. He seems to be the kind of person who just wants to observe and not be observed. Yeah. He even, he tells his wife after she forces him basically to tell her this story of what really happened. And he keeps trying to deflect her by joking and stuff, but he tells her six feet is a long way to fall. You know, we've got, Harry, who's missing a mother, like he really just kind of never goes into the mother at all. And then Deli is missing a father. Like she's got Tom Iverson, the stepfather, but her real father is nowhere to be seen in the film. So there's this kind of weird mirror between the two of them. And Harry, you know, other than that moment of him opening up to Paula, he seems to be at his most genuine with Deli and trying to really give her the childhood that I think he feels that he never really had. And he seems to be very protective of her, which, um, you know, it could just be another job, but for him, it seems to be a little bit more. And, you know, he's, uh, He's very deflecting of all of her come-ons, you know, that whole, uh, you brought up General Sternwood's daughters, yeah. and uh, the, the young daughter, the little sister, as it were, you know, she tried to sit on my lap while I was standing up, like those kind of things, you know, we don't, she is, um, Deli is all over Harry, flashing her boobs like crazy, the whole thing where she's wearing his shirt, and at one point he comes and sees her, and she's like, do you want your shirt back, and almost starts to strip right there in public. So yeah, there's a a lot of sexual intent going on there that he deflects. What is it? He He deflects it by thinking of things like Thanksgiving and George Washington's teeth, which are interesting things for him to think about. What were you thinking was interesting about him thinking about those things? I'll get into a little bit more in the second half of the show, but I definitely think that Harry's got a lot of um, a lot of issues in the oral phase, and you know, Thanksgiving yeah. a time when you're going to be opening up your mouth quite a bit for eating, and then George Washington's teeth, the maw of America, you could call it. <laughs> 
Rob, you and I, we've talked several times on this show about why we like films from the 70s. And mm-hmm. this one, for me, hits things on all cylinders as far as, you know, well, we've got things like Witch Kennedy and talking about the deaths of Jack and Robert Kennedy but this, for me, feels very uh, post-Watergate as well. This is 75, this thing is coming out. 74 is when the war ended. You know, This is right around the time that Nixon is being deposed. And it's just like, this to me feels like everybody is lying to Harry kind of the same way that the American public has been lied to. And it just feels like that kind of malaise that we get is really coming through in this film. I think that might've been maybe part of the reason why it didn't do as well on its release to a certain extent is that maybe reviewers at the time felt too close to home in some way. I also think that it deals with the possibilities of divorce and sort of step families in a way that is much different than I think maybe you would have had in an earlier era. Because obviously that was coming online and that was something that was kind of in the culture at the time that we were seeing. So I I think those things are all different compared to if this movie would have been made during the film noir era. I don't think there would have been uh, half as much of that stuff or it would have been in the subtext more. Yeah, they make a mention about um, sexual liberation and that if uh, everyone was as liberated as Delhi, there'd be rioting in the streets. I mean, she's definitely a holdover from this kind of free love era. It's interesting because in the original script by Alan Sharp, the movie within a movie that I was talking about was not set in the 20s, but it was actually set in the 60s. And it was hippies and dune buggies and all this kind of thing, which I think... It works a little bit better to me to put it in the 1920s for some reason, I guess because of the prohibition and then also the line that Harry says about the chess match that he's kind of reenacting was from 1922. So it's kind of a nice echo there. Well, also the 20s were sort of the last period of, you know, liberation of the culture before the 60s and early 70s. Because if you look back on that in the jazz era, you had the flappers and and all of that stuff. It was a much more um, loose time in that way. It was sort of similar to the late 60s and early 70s. So it is kind of interesting that there is those sort of uh, parallels in some way that he's using there. Maybe sort of uh, trying to get you to think of that, but not directly kind of hammering you with it. I think with Delhi too, you can also see how the sexual liberation kind of flower child thing sours because they're all, again, very certain that Delhi is going through them. They're not going through Delhi. But you also see Delhi's future not just in her mother, Arlene, who indicates very much that she had these same experiences when she says that she's knelt down before a whole bunch of Hollywood producers and stuff in Hollywood to get her job. But Paula kind of indicates that she was Delhi, and that Delhi is going to be her. And that isn't as happy and sunshiny a view of flower children, I think, as, as people even at the time the movie came out would have liked. The way that Arlene Iverson is being portrayed, she seems like she's a lot older than she is. You know, yeah. you brought up Norma Desmond, and it almost seems like there's three generations of women when you look at it, you know, which doesn't necessarily make sense chronologically as far as the age that Arlene could have had Delhi. But to me, it almost feels like Arlene would be the grandmother, Paula would be the mother, and Delhi would be 
the child as far as the different eras that these women might have grown up in. You know, the 60s, the 50s, and the 40s kind of thing. There has to be that mother-daughter relationship there. But yeah, for me, I guess maybe Paula is the older sister if we were to, you know, force a family relationship onto this. She sort of treats her that way, like she's caring, but she's also kind of aloof, and she does, she feels responsible, but she doesn't feel responsible. She tells Iverson to leave her alone without telling him to leave her alone when she, she tells um, well, she tells him to let her go. She doesn't tell him what you're doing is wrong and gross, <laughs> which is something an old sibling would do as opposed to someone who felt equal would do. There's so many great looks between Paula and Tom Iverson, sometimes with Harry, and, and you know, especially like when Harry first shows up, there are all these great looks going on between Paula and Iverson, as if they're communicating just through look alone. And then we find out when we find out how much they're in cahoots later on, it makes a, li- a little bit more sense. But as it is, when Harry shows up, it feels more like it, it's a nice kind of bluff here that we have. It's kind of like. What is Harry going to find out? He finds out this secret about Tom sleeping with his stepdaughter. You would think that's bad enough, but there's more to the story. And really, I don't know what you guys think, but I don't necessarily think that Harry is that good of a detective. Because it feels like there's a lot of times where he just doesn't go far enough or he doesn't get the clues. And sometimes those clues are overt, and sometimes those clues are kind of hidden a little bit but if he just kind of thought about it a little bit more he would be able to figure things out like there's a message that Delhi leaves for him on his answering machine and he turns it off there probably was a clue in there and there's other things like um at one point his um his hand is asleep his right hand and then later on he sees ziegler and ziegler has his right arm in a cast you know there's just like little weird echoes and stuff trying to tell harry what's going on but he just doesn't ever seem to get it you know just um he's not that good of a private eye sometimes i mean especially that the villain of the piece and you know we we already warned about spoilers, but the villain of the piece, Ziegler, is never seen as the villain until the very, very end of the film. And Harry is just completely not there. He never suspects Ziegler whatsoever. Like, Nick gets a little bit of a glimmer at one point through this conversation about, you know, former lovers of Arlene Iverson. But there's nothing. Like, Harry never gets it. Harry even, like, sleeps in his trailer. And he never gets what's going on with Ziegler. And it's just kind of funny to me that he is, in essence, a very, very bad detective in that way. Well, you could also say that his judgment has been clouded because he gets too involved, too personal with Tom and the woman and all of that stuff, like that whole scene. So instead of having this sort of professional distance where he can kind of review things and and all of that, he gets very emotionally involved. And I think that also kind of takes him out of being able to figure this stuff out because he's filtering it through another lens. The interesting thing about Ziegler to me is not only is he never suspected, but he's the only person that Harry seems to like unconditionally and that Harry seems to feel affirmed and validated by and who he he enjoys Ziegler's company. I have a hard time deciding whether or not he's a good or bad detective because I'm not sure what he's looking for. 
and what he seems to be looking for is, as Rob was saying, some something emotional the, that he's getting from Ziegler that he tries to get from Paula that he might be able to get from his wife if he didn't reject her or if he confronted her better. He's a very peculiar detective. I'm not sure exactly what he's trying to solve. And I sort of tacitly compared him earlier to Philip Marlowe when I was talking about the big sleep. But he really reminds me of uh, like existentialist heroes before they become heroes when they're just sort of passive drifters. Well, I was going to say that maybe he represents, the Ziegler character represents the father, as you were talking about, that he didn't have. So he kind of is glomming onto him to find that. Yeah, he's ready to throw over the private detective business and become a stuntman. Like, it's a little bit of a throwaway line, but yeah, he wants to follow in Ziegler's footsteps, which you don't get more literal of a, you know, son wanting to be the father kind of relationship. The one time he seems super happy is when he is at the football game with Ziegler. Yeah, and it's interesting because he's kind of between the two guys who could be fathers. I mean, the Nick character who is giving him, you know, he wants to give him a better job. He's giving them these kind of crumbs of cases and everything. And also we've got Ziegler there who's willing to get Harry into the stuntman's union, get him a stunt card and all this. And it's neat because we talk about Harry and we talk about the knight and there's that whole thing where he's going through that tunnel. I mean, you don't get much more Freudian than, than the tunnel <laughs> kind of imagery, but going through the tunnel, he's very much in the dark and they're complaining about the seats and all this stuff. And yeah, everything seems great when they come out into the sunshine and it's that beautiful summer day, you know, the home teams play in that kind of stuff. It just seems like all is right in the world at that particular point of the film. But Unfortunately, that is not the end of the story. There's a whole third act to this, and we we get back into the whole thing with his wife, and that still doesn't necessarily, even though it seems like they're kind of resolving it, it is not resolved. I love that scene when he goes in, goes back to the apartment, the Marty Heller apartment, which, God, is just the ugliest apartment I've ever seen. <laughs> all those, all that art on the walls just is so ostentatious, and it's just, like, way too much, and they're playing the classical music on the hi-fi and all this, and, yeah, it's just... Um, in the way that he's talking about Harry in the third person, which is one of the few times where Harry kind of stands up for himself a little bit by threatening uh, Marty to, that he'll uh, make Marty eat his own cat. Again, a little bit of oral sex, I suppose, could be implied there about eating pussy, but I won't go there at this particular point. That mystery necessarily isn't solved either. They kind of leave that up in the air, um, almost literally because of Harry having to take a plane back to Florida, and it's interesting because it's not him who finds out that Delhi has died, but it's his wife who finds out that Delhi has died hearing it on the radio. And I can't remember if this is in the script or if it's in the movie, but at least in one of them, he's listening to the radio, and then he turns it off and goes into another room, and his wife is leaving in the car, and she stops in the... uh, Okay, I think it's in the script, because she stops in the driveway and then runs back in and tells him, because he basically turned off the radio right before that news of Delhi's death came on. So again, him not picking up on the clues, him not getting the information. So it's actually somebody else kind of giving him information rather than him getting it himself. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's neat that, um, 
I mean, there really is such a great third act to this film where everything kind of comes together and falls apart all at once. And uh, we get to see just, God, the, the bodies start stacking up like crazy in this part of the film. I mean, we really haven't had... We find a dead body at one point. There's a dead body on uh, in the bottom of uh, the ocean or the bay or wherever they're at. After that, though, there's nothing for quite a while. And then, bam, it's just like everybody starts going down. And all these people are just dying left and right. And um, and then when we find out who the person is behind this, the whole Ziegler thing, I mean, just some some amazing stuff happening with that. And again, we get this nice echo. Ziegler crashes his plane, kills Paula in this absolutely bizarre way, kills Paula. His plane goes down, and then we get the same thing. Rob, you talked about. Ziegler, you know, being possibly the father thing, and we get to see Ziegler underneath that glass bottom of the boat doing the same thing, trying to talk, and we just see his mouth moving. It's like his, it's like Harry's father reading the comic strips. You know, we see the mouth moving, we don't hear the words, and he just fades off. He goes six feet under. Harry reaches for him, but he can't touch him through. So, man, and then after that, Harry is trying to save himself. He's been shot trying to save himself and he can't quite do it so his boat is just there going in circles in the ocean and that's how we leave him which is just one of those great great endings i think another way that he's really terrible as a detective is not only does he not solve this case he's kind of the reason a lot of these people die because he turns off that message he gets from delhi which presumably would have been a clue that might have allowed him to prevent this whole chain of death. But he doesn't, and he goes there, and more people die. He leaves that crazy scene. Like, he brings Deli back to Arlene, which is a bad thing that he brought her back to Arlene. And there's this whole thing, too, where it's like, she doesn't want me for me. She wants me for my money, because her the, Arlene's dead husband had set up a trust fund for Delhi and you know once Delhi dies then it's all the money is going to revert to Arlene so it's just uh, when he brings Delhi back it, we've got James Woods there as Quentin we've got Arlene there and we've got Delhi there and they're all just screaming at each other and Harry's just kind of taking it in you know like a little bemused about this whole thing but not giving it as much thought as he probably should because he's basically you know just lighting a match and throwing it into the powder room you know just uh, it, it, he is just what really wants to solve the case, bring the girl back, and that's it. He doesn't think about it later on. Do you think he thinks knowing is enough? That that's what he approaches being a private detective as? Like, I find him very puzzling as a person. He seems to kind of, I mean, he mulls over a lot of things. And, you know, you've brought up Marlowe, and we've talked about night moves, but there's that scene in the film where he talks about this game from 1922, this chess game, where there was an obvious solution to the chess game right in front of the guy, and he was unable to solve it, and he got checked by three little night moves. Do you play? Another moves. Back at a mate. Didn't see it. Queen sacrifice. And three little night moves. Check. 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 Ah, oh, it's a beauty. Yeah. 
But he didn't see it. He played something else and he lost. Must have regretted it every day of his life. I know I would have. Matter of fact, I do regret it. I wasn't even born yet. That's no excuse. It's that same thing, man. Harry's looking at this board, this chess game, and he can't solve it. And he's not seeing that he is going to get sideswiped by three little moves kind of thing. And it's it's interesting because you know, you've brought up Marlo and Marlo is famous for having uh, chess games going and just you know, there's almost always a chess board set up in Philip Marlowe's apartment or office. Well, yeah, we uh, we were talking about the big sleep, and in that, in fact, he comes home to find Carmen Sternwood, Sternwood naked in his bed, and his response is to go over to his chessboard and work on one of his problems from the 1920s that he can't solve. And it also is one that uh, he actually tries to use a knight to solve the problem, and um discovers that this problem cannot be solved by knights, that this world is not a world for knights. Which is funny because they usually refer to Philip Marlowe as the knight errant of uh, private detectives. Though his name isn't invoked in the film. It's interesting that when uh, Marty is being threatened that he tells Harry to punch him in the mouth like Sam Spade would. And that is more of a Sam Spade thing. I would say it's definitely a Mike Hammer mm-hmm. thing. It's not a Philip Marlowe thing to necessarily cold cock a guy in the jaw, but no. it, it, it's neat that he's evoking Spade rather than Marlowe at that moment. He, he compares him to Mr. Keen Tracer of Lost Persons, too, which was like a, an old radio play show. Good catch on that one. <laughs> I did not catch that at all. Thank you. Let's take a break and play an interview with Nat Segaloff, the author of Arthur Penn, American Director, after these brief messages. Are you tired of the same old stuff Hollywood puts out week after week? You know, all those less than appealing remakes, those films with over-the-top CG and no storyline? Well, we don't have to take it anymore thanks to the 2015 B-Movie Celebration. Polyscope Media presents the ninth annual B-Movie Celebration. In 2015, we're going to go back in time, back to 1985 to be exact. The ninth annual B-Movie Celebration will feature the following films from this time period. Fright Night. Malibu Express. The Last Dragon. Invasion USA. Remo Williams' The Adventure Begins. Return of the Living Dead. Trencers. Reanimator. Morons from Space. The Stuff. Life Force. DEFCON 4. Damnation Alley. Better Off Dead. Godzilla 1985. Along with those 80s classics, we're going to showcase The Blob from 1958 and Death Race 2000 from 1975. So pack those bags, recharge that flux capacitor, and join us for the 9th Annual B-Movie Celebration on August 14th, 15th, and 16th, 2015 at the Brown County Playhouse in Nashville, Indiana. For updated information on this event, bookmark the bmoviecelebration.com website using your favorite browser, and we promise to have you home back in time. Titles mentioned in this promo are subject to change without notice. The Badasses, Boobs, and Body Counts podcast is an official sponsor of the 9th Annual B-Movie Celebration. Flesh Like Smoke is the toothsome new shapeshifter anthology from April Moon Books. 
curated and edited by Brian M. Sammons with illustrations by Neil Baker, Flesh Like Smoke is a collection of 16 tales of visceral horror from today's most talented authors. Some of these tortured souls lash out against their cursed existence, while others relish the taste of animalistic power. Ranging from gut-wrenching terror to heart-rending pathos, Flesh Like Smoke will leave you salivating for more with every turn of the page. Flesh Like Smoke is available in paperback and ebook format from Amazon.com and AprilMoonBooks.com, as well as other online purveyors of fine literature. Hurry to sink your claws into a copy before the next full moon. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Forgotten Flicks. I'm Joel, and I'm here, as always, with my co-host, Jason. The whole point of the Forgotten Flicks podcast, the idea behind it, was that we wanted to create something, a mouthpiece for fans of movies from the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s, the movies that we all grew up with. This was one of the worst movies I have seen in a long You are full of crap. Are you being serious? I will never, ever see him as anything else but uh, Edgar the cockroach guy from Men in Black. Full Metal Jacket. I love his his playing that Edgar role in Men in Black was hilarious. <laughs> Who do you think you are all of a sudden? I can't believe you hate this movie. Everything is so contrived. Painfully, so I'm just going to read through my notes. And whether you remember the movies or you forgot about them or maybe you never even heard of the movies we're talking about, the point is that we're all keeping the memories of the movies we love alive. Find us on iTunes or ForgottenFlicks.com. My name is Nat Segaloff, and I'm a book writer mostly, but I also produce television shows on occasion. How did you get into the writing business? That's the hardest question I've been asked in a long time. It, it turns out that I was always a good writer, and I didn't know that until I had a college teacher who gave me my first approbation. I got into the writing business for film by being hired to write press releases for movie companies, which we would plant in local papers, and I found I had the ability to grind these things out. 10, 20 a week if I needed to. It's a very short jump from that to simply writing reviews or newspaper copy because the newspapers have the need for the copy that a public relations person would grind out. So after five years of doing publicity, I was able to call up the people I'd been pitching stories to run for my clients to pitching them the stories to run for me. And I rounded the corner, crossed the street, and became a film critic and a film interviewer. Around when did you start? I got into publicity fresh out of school in 1970, and I became a critic in about 1977, give or take. I'm old. Not old, just finely preserved, like a good wine or a cheese. Well, you know, they say that whores in buildings get respect with age, so... <laughs> Hopefully movie critics right, do as well. <laughs> but I, I gave up being a critic in the early 1990s when uh, I realized that there was really no future in it. This was before digital, but it was after my newspaper had uh, messed up my copy so often that I really couldn't send on tear sheets to anybody. Did you go more into the producing at that time or more into the books at that time? The producing of the books kind of came about at the same time. While looking for something to write about, I was able to get a job with some of the people I'd worked with as a critic who had moved out to California and had become producers themselves. So I started producing a lot of A&E biographies for a wonderful company called Weller Grossman Productions. And we're the ones who really firmed up the format for A&E before they decided how they could 
make their biographies all look the same. We experimented a bit, and so I, I did the biographies of John Belushi and Sherry Lewis and Lambchop and Larry King and Stan Lee, and it was after we had done a run of those for a couple of years that A&E settled on how they do these things, and then, of course, they got rid of us. But I'm very proud of that work, and, and still am. A&E was really doing something special in those days. Now they're more TNA. Now, when it came to writing books, how did you kind of decide which subjects you were going to write about? A very good friend of mine, Gregory McDonald, who was the writer of the Fletch and Flynn mystery series, gave me a stern talking to one day. He said, Nat, they make maybe 100 movies a year, but they publish 100,000 books a year, so stop trying to sell movie scripts and start trying to sell books. And I took Greg at his word, and because I had a good agent and a good subject, I was able to sell my first book, which was Hurricane Billy, the biography of William Friedkin. I had known Billy because I had handled The Exorcist in Boston in one of the first national engagements, had gotten indicted, like everybody else, for showing a blasphemous film, and Billy came to our defense, and we just struck up a friendship. And he was brave enough and kind enough to let me do his biography in the late 1980s, as it turned out. Uh, the book came out, and I rather liked the idea of being fully in control of my own work. So in between being a critic and reviewing movies for the Boston Herald and other publications, I kept on trying to write books. So I did uh, the Billy book, as I call it, uh, a couple of books on movie love stories with writing partners, did some plays now and then, and then uh, began writing everything books, which are kind of the dummies books, which are a bit funnier and more literate, and uh, just kept on writing whatever I could sell. I was very surprised to see that you had done a book on Sterling Siliphant, who is, to me, one of the great underappreciated screenwriters. You're quite right. You have very good taste. Sterling and I met when I was doing regional publicity for The Towering Inferno back in the fall of 1974. We kind of stayed in touch. Actually, his wife and I stayed in touch because she was a documentary filmmaker named Tiana, who has a new film coming out called The General and Me that perhaps we'll be able to get you to talk to her for. But Sterling was just, you're right, he, he, he wrote everything. He had his finger truly on the pulse of America by doing Route 66, by writing In the Heat of the Night and Charlie and then the disaster films. He was marvelous and fast and a good man and a thorough professional. I interviewed him at great length for a series of books put out by the University of California called Backstory. We simply kept in touch. He was living in Thailand by then, so we did the interviewing by fax. This was before the Internet really took off. And when he passed away in 1996, I had all this unpublished stuff. It took me a long time to be able to get a book out of it, which Bear Manor Media, who is now my publisher, was very kind to put out two years ago, called Sterling Siliphant, The Fingers of God, which was a full biography of Sterling, including the material I had in the University of California Press stuff, backstory, and also material which I never published, and lots of new material and interviews. So that's a long answer for a book that I'm very proud of, and it really, I think, gives Sterling his due, because there are very few biographies of screenwriters out there. How did you come to write the biography of Arthur Penn? Nobody else had done it. I was looking for a project about 2005, and I was astonished and shocked to realize that there was not a book about Arthur Penn. Robin Wood had written a monograph on Arthur Penn in the late 60s, ending on Little Big Man, and there had been nothing about that since then, and Arthur Penn is one of the major directors of American film. So, and this is the weirdest thing, I asked him, he's in the phone book, or was in the phone book, the reason I found out that Arthur Penn was listed in the phone book was he found it was better to have people call first instead of just dropping by with their film for him to look at. 
He was thoroughly approachable. We had never met before. We had never, ever met, even though I was interviewing everybody, including some people on his films. We had never been in the same place at the same time. He was open to it. And a strange way that I got the job, he auditioned me, and I didn't know it. In 2005, the Motion Picture Academy was giving a tribute to Arthur, showing night moves in New York at their theater. And Arthur, for reasons I didn't understand at the time, told the Academy he'd only do it if I could emcee the event. This was before he'd met me. The Academy flew me to New York, and it was wonderful, and they were very sweet. And I'm about halfway through emceeing the event, interviewing Estelle Parsons and folks like that, when I realized that Arthur is in the audience and he's auditioning me. He wants to see if I can, if I can do this. And afterwards, of course, uh, apparently I passed because uh, we started doing in-depth interviews. And it really is the only book about Arthur that has any depth at all, and I'm very proud of that. Unfortunately, he died before it came out, although he was with me every page of the way while we went through the final draft. And let me tell you, sitting across the table from someone like Arthur Penn, turning the pages and realizing what he's talking about and what I'm writing about were the same thing, is one of the major moments of my life. Penn was famously involved with television in his early days. Was it easy or difficult for him to kind of make that leap to film at that particular point? Arthur was one of the prime directors of the Golden Age of Television. He directed The Miracle Worker, of course, for television, and countless plays for the Philco uh, Goodyear Playhouse, for GE Theater, for all of the early shows that we, we now think about so nostalgically. He told me he would have been just as happy to keep on directing television all those years. He had no interest in going into film. But somebody made him an offer to direct, in this case, The Left-Handed Gun at Warner Brothers, and he said, what the heck, I'll give it a try because he got to work with his friend Paul Newman, who he had put on television early on. That was a bad experience for him, the left-handed gun. So he fell back to uh, Broadway, won a couple of toadies for The Miracle Worker, and then they saw that film through. And that was the film that really is the first Arthur Penn film, the one that enabled him to make a real mark and to, I think, still move audiences. One thing looking at his filmography, he is so varied when it comes to the topics that he's dealing with. Did you find a lot of similar themes, at least, throughout his work, or was he just completely you know, different from film to film? He wanted to see what interested him at any given moment. And the first thing we established in our interviews, which were quite long and quite in-depth, were not to talk about the auteur theory, not to try to analyze or deconstruct the films, because we both realized that movies are half accident and half inspiration. And although he is most often tagged with lighting, liking to shoot pictures through glasses or through mirrors, you know, through a glass darkly, he acknowledged, there isn't much else that he plans by going in. He simply sees what's the best way to shoot the scene, and that's what he develops. So we didn't talk about semiotics. We didn't talk about symbolism. We just talked about what interested him at any moment. And his curiosity was vast. Arthur was a student at Black Mountain College, and they were known for having students who just wanted to learn, and they could set up their own schedules and their own subjects. So his mind was vast, and his curiosity was intense and limitless. And so he would take whatever was interesting at any given point. And fortunately, for about 15 years, he had the run of whatever he wanted. So you say The Miracle Worker is kind of his first film, and then starting with Mickey 1 in 1965, he is directing a movie a year for a long time up until Little Big Man. And then after that, there's kind of a little pause there where he just does the segment in Visions of Eight. And really, you could say it's five years between Little Big Man and Night Moves. Why was there that pause there? 
he was doing stage work. He was working at the Berkshire Theater Festival. He was doing some things on Broadway. He was working in regional theater, and nothing had really interested him. It's a funny thing. Remember, he didn't consider himself a film director, so that's almost a secondary career for him. The space between Little Big Man and Night Moves was filled with trying to develop other projects. You know, he thought about doing the film on Attica, then realized it really wasn't something he should do. And then, of course, he was crushed by the same things that the country was being crushed by, the 60s. And as they moved into the 70s, he was filled with this intense sense of ennui, which, of course, is what Night Moves is all about. It's about the crushing of American culture and the crushing of American spirit. And he was finally able to find the articulation of this through Alan Sharp's screenplay and by Robert Sherman's producing and, of course, by Gene Hackman's amazing performance. Now, he had worked with Hackman before and Bonnie and Clyde. What was their working relationship like? The one thing that Arthur told me about Gene Hackman was if you get to speak to him and you may not, don't compliment his acting. Now, I've spoken a couple of times with Hackman and I can't say they were warm interviews. He is a brilliant actor, probably the best actor this country has produced in talking films, and he doesn't like talking about the craft. So I was cautioned by Arthur, simply talk about nuts and bolts, and I I couldn't get Hackman to respond to interview requests. Uh, Well, actually, I, I lied. His wife said he would answer two or three questions for me by email, and that isn't how I work. So I respect him enormously. And I think that Arthur's working relationship with him, not only in Bonnie and Clyde and in Night Moves, but also in Target, which he made later with Matt Dillon, uh, was a very respectful relationship. But I don't believe it was as intimate as his relationship, say, with Dustin Hoffman or Penn and Teller or other performers. How do you see Night Moves as kind of this response to that ennui that you're talking about? How can we use a detective film to address things like the end of the 60s, the assassinations of major leaders, Watergate, these kind of things? Night Moves is, with Chinatown and The Long Goodbye, the holy trinity of detective films of the 1970s. And the detective film is such that the person in the center of the story tries to resolve tangled threads which come together. But if you look at The Long Goodbye and Night Moves and uh, the, uh, in Chinatown, there really aren't threads that do come together, particularly in Night Moves. Uh, well, let's talk first about The Long Goodbye. Philip Marlowe, played by Elliot Gould, doesn't solve the mystery. It's solved for him. He can't even find his cat by the end of the film. So that's really a metaphor for how whatever you do it's not going to be enough. Uh, Chinatown, yes, does have a solution. But what a solution? It's uh, an amoral, uh, amorphous solution because Jake Gitz does not really solve the mystery. He knows what it is, but he's completely helpless to do anything about it. The bad guys get away. And in Night Moves, we don't really know who the bad guys are. Supposedly they're dead, but there's still all sorts of threads running around. In Night Moves, Gene Hackman plays a detective who used to be a football player, but he injured himself out of the game. He's hired to find a runaway daughter by a Beverly Hills widow who has far too much money and too much alcohol. He finds the girl, brings her home, but then she's killed, and he tries to find out who killed her and why she was killed. And now for those of you in the listening audience who haven't seen the end of this movie, I'm going to tell you spoilers because you should have seen it by now. It involves smuggling of pre-Columbian art from South America up into the Florida Keys. That sounds very minor, but if you take a step back, you see that Night Moves is about a culture, the pre-Columbian culture, being looted 
by somebody else. And that is what Arthur and Alan Sharp and the people who made Night Moves thought had happened to American culture, thanks to the assassinations, thanks to Watergate, thanks to all the corruption of the 1960s. American culture was looted by people who should have been protecting it. You know, the three movies that you've mentioned, Chinatown, The Long Goodbye, and Night Moves, all three very centered in Los Angeles, which plays into the noir tradition, but then also kind of plays against it a little bit because we've had a lot of stories taking place in New York, a lot of them taking place in San Francisco. But the thing with both The Long Goodbye and Night Moves especially is that whole shadow of Hollywood that's happening. I mean, obviously, Long Goodbye starting with Hooray for Hollywood and all that. How do you see that kind of working into this story as well? Well, Hollywood, of course, has its finger firmly up the culture of the American public, and they cater to it, and they, they rip it off in many ways. And so having these all be California stories really dims the promise of California by adding a paintbrush of reality to the whole thing. Uh, the fact that The Long Goodbye begins with Hooray for Hollywood is one of Robert Altman's little jokes. I mean, he, he was telling me that the reason that the film was done in modern times rather than in period, and the reason Elliot Gould is dressed several years earlier than the film was supposedly set in 1973, is because Philip Marlowe is the only moral man in an immoral universe, California being an immense immoral universe. And Philip Marlowe will always be out of place in his universe because he's the only person who's looking after right and wrong. By the same token, Jake Gitz is a fellow who does divorce work, which is pretty sleazy to begin with. But then he gets involved in something which is far bigger than him. He's way over his head. And like the audience, he's powerless to do anything about the corruption around him. So now we settle on Night Moves of 1975, which is a story about a man who can't even find himself. And really, that's what the film was all about. So I think it's, it's a metaphor for how America was running around lost, like a little bumper car running into the walls and not really being able to set itself right again. Normally, there's one or two female protagonists or one or two female characters, I should say, in a Chandler novel, whereas with Night Moves, you've got so many female characters. It's really kind of remarkable, and each of them having different aspects to them. There's not just the good girl and the femme fatale. There are so many different female characters in this particular movie. That's a good point. I hadn't really considered that, except that Arthur got some very good actresses to play in those. It was Melanie Griffith's first role, by the way. She went up for the job thinking she was being asked to model for something, and it turned out at 15 or 16 years old, she was being asked to, to co-star in this movie. So I, a lot of people, I think, did very unexpected things. Janice Rule and, of course, the marvelous Jennifer Warren, who just tears the screen apart as the femme fatale. And you notice she never really lies. She just never tells the complete truth. That's, of course, Gene Hackman's downfall. He doesn't really fall in love with her, but he has an affair with her, I think, because it's kind of expected of a private eye to do that. But again, he's so lost, and he's in such a cold marriage, that he will probably take any affection. And as usual, it's the affection that turns the head of the private investigator in the wrong direction. What was the relationship like between Arthur Penn and Alan Sharp on this film? It was combative at times. Uh, Alan, who passed away a couple of years ago, was a very opinionated writer, a Scotsman, extremely talented, but was into the malts at the time. Arthur wasn't. And Alan kind of wrote the script, originally called The Dark Tower, uh, less as a metaphor for Hollywood than simply as, well, he called it a threnody, which is a great word, a threnody of what was wrong with the world at that particular point. Then when Arthur surprisingly attached himself to it, 
he demanded a lot of rewrites. Arthur demanded rewrites to try to focus it a bit more on the lost central character. Uh, and Alan was going through a bit of trouble with his wife at the time, as was Gene Hackman at the time. So when they were shooting around the Florida Keys, there was a certain amount of, shall we say, discussions going on uh, on the domestic fronts. Um, Alan was not terribly fond of the film when it first came out, but I believe in his later years, at least when he spoke to me, he had mellowed somewhat and realized what a classic he and Arthur had created. Was the film received well? The film did not do that well commercially for a reason uh, I'll give you in a moment. Uh, It was received fairly well critically, although some critics were concerned that the crime didn't seem big enough to warrant the attention of, of the story that supported it. But it didn't really have a chance to take off very well because the same week it opened, Jaws opened. And everything else went to hell because the entire country was looking for sharks instead of pre-Columbian art. And so it was one of these... One of these horrible moments, you know, Night Moves got buried by a shark, just as two years later, William Friedkin's brilliant film Sorcerer was buried by Star Wars. Yeah, it's ironic, too, how the end of Night Moves and Jaws are a little similar, especially with the exploding uh, oxygen tank. <laughs> yes, that, I never connected those two. That's, that's why you're on the radio and the, the pods, and I'm sitting here on a phone interview, uh, I guess. But, of course, the real Jaws doesn't end like that. As you remember from the book, the shark just gets tired and drowns. They needed to end it with a bang, however. And night moves the same way. They didn't realize until they were on the water that the idea of, of, of Harry Mosby, Gene Hackman, being tethered to the wheel, unable to really do anything with the throttle of his boat, sailing endlessly in a circle in the open sea, was a pretty good metaphor as well. So they just left it in. So after night moves... What does Penn kind of set his sights on next? What's the, the next thing that catches his fancy? Well, of course, the Munich Olympics, which did not turn out well. He made a short film, Provisions of Eight, all about high jumpers. He was originally going to do a short subject about a, a prize fighter who was uh, in jail at the time and was going to get paroled and be able to go to the Olympics. But he didn't get paroled. So that kind of blew that, and they had to do something very quickly. And he kind of potchkied around for a while did a little bit of theater. He eventually directed Sly Fox, which was Larry Gilbart's brilliant rewriting, revisualization of uh, Ben Johnson's Vol Pony. And he had a lot of fun doing theater for a while. They tried to get that going as a movie, and it, it didn't. Uh, but eventually he, he, he kind of surfaces doing uh, things like Four Friends, which is a nostalgic piece touching on his unsettled childhood and also that of Steve Tessich, the writer. He uh, tried to get other projects going, and it just didn't really work until he took over a project called Dead of Winter. He eventually made Penn and Teller get killed. He did Target for Zanuck and Brown. I mean, he kind of potchkied around, but it was the end. Night Moves was really the end of what we call an Arthur Penn film. And I think he was a bit disappointed in that. But at the same time, he'd done you know, two or three classics. Miracle Worker, Bonnie and Clyde, Little Big Man, Night Moves. So, I mean, what else can a person do? Well, I'm hoping we're going to get you back on here one of these days because we've been talking about covering Penn and Teller get killed for, I think, about three years now. And it's uh, coming on time that we need to do that. It's a brilliant movie, and I'll explain why some other time. Terrific. What are you working on these days? 
Well, I've got three books coming out, only two of which have publishers at the moment. The new one is called Mr. Houston, Mr. North, Life, Death, and the Making of John Houston's Last Movie. And that's coming out at the end of August from Bear Manor Media. It's the story of a small film called Mr. North that John Houston had co-written and was executive producing for his son, Danny Houston, to direct in Newport, Rhode Island in the summer of 1987 when he fell ill and eventually died of emphysema. The film had nobody in it in particular, Robert Mitchum, Harry Dean Stanton, Lauren Bacall, uh, Anthony Edwards, uh, Mary Stuart Masterson. Uh, I mean, it was just anybody they could find. It were some of the most amazing performers. And this is just a story about a little film that wasn't a special film, but it became special because of what happened to John Houston along the way. I was the only reporter allowed on the set for the whole film, and I was the one who broke all the stories around the world about Houston's death. So I kept all my notes, and thanks to Bear Manor, they're coming out. The other book is I've agreed with Bear Manor again to do my memoirs, which is a very strange thing for somebody like me to say, but it's, it's not so much about me, but it's about the people that I met as a critic, as an interviewer, and as a press agent, all the movie stars and all the stuff behind the scenes for over the years. I hope that'll be out sometime in, in 2016. And I'm finishing up writing right now the biography of Harlan Ellison, the great speculative fiction writer of I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream, A Boy and His Dog, and 1,700 other stories. And that one, I'm really looking forward to getting out there, and uh, I hope we can talk about that. I would definitely love to talk about that. He is a fascinating guy. He is a wonderful, wonderful man, so warm-hearted, and so much disturbs him that he sometimes bites. But he, with me, has never been foul-tempered. He's never been brusque. He has always been the great Harlan Ellison, and I'm so proud to be able to put this book out. It's the only one ever about him. Yeah, there's one thing on your CV that just sticks out so much, and I have to ask you about it. Can you tell me, how did you get involved with the Bronies documentary? John Delancey, who was one of my partners on Alien Voices, along with Leonard Nimoy, uh, which was a science fiction production company where we made audiobook versions of classic science fiction stories using Star Trek actors and actresses. John plays the role of Discord, one of the main characters in the Brony series. And when he and Michael Brockhoff, who was a terrific producer, decided to make a Kickstarter-funded documentary about the Bronies, uh, he asked me if I'd come along as a writer. And I did. And we did. And they got released, what, two years ago and did pretty well. Yeah, I saw it at the uh, Kansas City Film Festival with Mr. Delancey there, and it was quite an interesting look at a subculture I had never been exposed to before. The Bronies have received quite a lot of bad press, and they did at the time even more so. And so John and Mike and the others wanted to make uh, a film that was very positive about them and, and show the personalities and the, the generous and really caring people that they are, very talented people that they are, too. But these are not people who don't go out much. These are people who have an extraordinary sense of social responsibility and creativity, and they've never been given full credit for it.
Thanks to Mr. Segaloff for taking the time to talk to us about his work. Arthur Penn, American Director. You can find out more about it on our website, projection-booth.com. He also talked a bit about in that interview Arthur Penn's left-handed gun with Paul Newman, which has often been described as a Freudian Western. So uh, what do you see in terms of Freudian ideas when it comes to night moves? Sometimes I hesitate to get into movies this way, but God, this movie is just, it's so ripe with great things when it comes to like Freudian stuff. And I just love, I love picking apart movies when it comes like to things like this. Like one of the things that I really noticed in the movie was just how many breasts there are in the film. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we've talked about four main female characters and all of them, they're either getting their breasts groped showing them off, talking about them. Arlene talks about her breasts. And then Paula gives this whole thing about her breasts and how the the first guy who ever got her nipples hard, they stayed hard for half an hour and all this stuff. And Deli's showing off her breasts. And the first time that we see Harry with his wife, he comes in, holds his hand over her eyes and starts groping her boobs. And it, it just, it was too much for me to not talk about this kind of stuff. <laughs> Harry is a as a lost child. You know, I think people in the film call him childish. I know reviewers referred to him as being childish. And for me that's absolutely appropriate because he does seem to be this lost little boy. He doesn't have his mother. He found his father, but he's kind of trying to find a new one as he goes through this whole search. And for me, he kind of seems to be stuck in the oral phase. I mean, there just seems to be so much stuff going on orally with Harry Mosby. I mean, we talked about, um, you know, George Washington's teeth and Thanksgiving. I mean, he's drinking, he's smoking all the time. Uh, in the script, I, I found it interesting that they cut away before this, but in the script, he actually goes down on Paula. That's their sexual intercourse. There's no, he doesn't penetrate her at all. He just goes down on her. And then you mentioned, Carol, about Arlene says, you know, how many men she went down on her knees for to get her jobs in Hollywood. So if there is sex going on, it seems to be almost all oral sex, at least you know, implied or seen in here. So it's just, it, it's funny to me how much of that is going on. And then, I don't know, it, it just, I don't know if I'm reading too much into this or if you guys kind of picked up on this stuff as well. I was actually glad you brought it up because, boy, was I noticing the breasts in this movie. <laughs> and it's not something I usually pay a whole lot of attention to. But there's even a scene when his wife comes in to confront him in his office when he's been lying on his desk, theoretically closing down his office to go work for his friend and starting to listen to that message for Deli. His wife comes in while he's listening and he turns it off. She's come to discuss their marriage, basically, and their relationship and express that she wants to try to move on even though they've hurt each other. And she's wearing a nearly see-through top without a bra on. And the whole scene is pulled back with them both very visible (laughs) (laughs) on the screen. And I'm like, wow, you you know, you really have something with uh, Harry and his oral fixation there. Um, And the movie's oral and breast fixation. I definitely know she seems to be mothering him. I mean, there's the one part where she talks about, you know, fixing him some cocoa, which normally people don't 
tend, I mean, the, your wife or your husband can fix you some cocoa, but it generally is more of a maternal type act. So I don't know. It just really felt to me, and especially because she's trying to placate him after he's found out about her and Marty. And for me, I mean, sometimes it almost feels like Marty and her are the parents and Harry is the child. And like the night moves in this case can almost be the movement under the sheets kind of thing. It can almost be the primal scene that we're talking about because he's constantly like stepping in on them and it feels like you know the little kid who's kind of opening the bedroom door kind of thing and upset with what he's seeing and it's upset that marty heller is in there with harry's wife but really it almost feels more like an edible thing like get away from my mother kind of thing the coco scene also happens before he's confronted her or before she came in to confront him about confronting the man that she's having an affair with. That's right. So, like, this is after her date night where they went and saw their very adult Romer film and drank their sherry and had their cheese, and then she comes home to petulant Harry, who won't tell her what's wrong and offers to make him cocoa to make it better. I mean, you really can't get more parental than that. Yeah, and Harry doesn't get Romer. He he does not want to see that. He compares it to paint drying, as Rob said before. So, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> he's not there with the adults. He's at the kids' table. And maybe that's why he kind of gets along with Deli a little bit more. Yeah, and in a strange way, he, he is very maternal with Deli. Like, not that men can't be the way he is with her, but... I think a man like Harry, who's working so hard to be a man, it's interesting to me that he is so caring with Deli when Deli, he's the one that goes and comforts her when she has a terrifying dream after seeing a dead person. And she even talks about him patting her on the back is reminiscent of uh-huh. when a baby feels the, the mother's heartbeat next to its back. I would also see it as that she's looking for a real father figure because the stepfather while he's there, I don't really get the feeling that she respects him in that way either. No, she kind of wants to take him away from Paula. It's like everybody's kind of looking for that that good parent in here, and unfortunately there are no real good parents to be found. Everybody seems to be either screwing up or screwing people over. Well, maybe this is also where you could tie in the whole thing with uh, Watergate, where if you see the president, and I think even Nixon even said this at some point, or maybe I'm putting words in his mouth from our um, Secret Honor episode, where I think there's some dialogue in Secret Honor where he talks about you know the president being the father of the country. And all of this idea of the the president being the father of the family, which the family being the United States. So this, once again, I think might even be another place where you were saying this could tie back into the whole Watergate idea. It's no coincidence that Night Moves is one of many neo-noirs that are happening at this point. And, you know, we talked a little bit to Mr. Segaloff earlier about the big three. You know, the big three that were out at this point, Night Moves... The Long Goodbye, and Chinatown. And all of those seem to really be kind of looking at this whole idea of being lost in America and these father figures that just aren't any good. I mean, the uh, the, the character that Sterling Hayden played in The Long Goodbye, I mean, one of the worst fathers in the entire world, the um, character that John Huston plays in Chinatown, who, again, sleeping with his daughter, so big-time incest stuff going on there, sleeping with the daughter 
and in essence his granddaughter as well so yeah just absolutely terrible and you want to talk about the father of your country kind of fucking you over here's houston you know as i think his character's name is noah cross right so noah another nice biblical reference going on here having sex with his daughter and in essence his granddaughter and yeah just um There was a lot of this going on at this particular point. These great neo-noirs that were really kind of challenging audiences and carrying just, you know, a whole lot of dynamite inside of them. And it's a shame that of all of them, you know, I think Chinatown is the most recognized. I think The Long Goodbye is recognized quite a bit, but it's more of a, a film fan favorite. And I think that night moves still just doesn't necessarily get the respect that it deserves. And I think it deserves a lot of respect because it is one of these films where I just rewatched it, you know, a third time within the last three days, right before we recorded this. And I'm still jotting down notes and still seeing things and just like, wow, there is just so much about this. This is, this is a term paper worthy film. If there ever was one, there's so many ways that you can look at this movie and just see different things every time you look into it. It really is interesting with that because I think it doesn't get the respect that the other two get because in a way it seems like an easier film. It just, on the surface, it just tells a nice little story. You know, like Rob said, 90 minutes in and out, no muss, no fuss. But there's, you know, you really got to have some patience with this. You have to watch it the second time, the third time, all these, you know, just keep looking at it and you're going to find more to it. And yeah, I mean, even just go in and take a look at the breasts. You're going to be finding a whole lot. There's probably a whole lot that we missed. I didn't look at the pre-Columbian art to see if there were some bare boobies hanging out there. Well, I did notice that the last piece they had looked like a sacrificial stone. Like the kind of thing you'd put a victim over and cut their heart out. Yeah, it looked like a chalk mole. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, and so yeah, there's this whole thing about the smuggling and how close Cuba is to the edge of Florida. And really, I mean, these guys, Harry's going from one edge of America, the West Coast, to another edge of America where you know, you're almost falling off into the Gulf of Mexico down in the keys and you know he's he's barely hanging on to it and it's it's interesting that he is um i mean the keys are he's as far south as you can get um and it's uh, yeah just so close to those kind of foreign lands and that whole idea of exploiting foreign culture and bringing in these works of art that we really shouldn't have and you know robbie talked about how close we were to vietnam and everything and just yeah, I mean, that's another kind of imperialistic situation. And in this one, it's imperialist, but it's a little more sneaky. Like, we're going to sneak these works of art out of other places just so we can have them in our offices. And, you know, fuck the Indians. Fuck whoever had this stuff before. It's ours now because we're smarter and we're richer. Yeah, and they make a big deal about, oh, well, Mexico is making a fuss about how we it doesn't want people smuggling pre-Columbian art and trading in pre-Columbian art anymore, so we're going to get it now because it'll be super valuable. And that's actually that kind of ease and the way that they're sort of smuggling in these messages as they smuggle in the artifacts reminds me more of classic noir, where a lot of, like, I love The Long Goodbye. It's one of my favorite movies ever, but it is 
it's not smuggling anything. Like it's, it, you know, in the seventies, there was a lot more freedom in what people could show. And so what they showed was right there. And the breasts are right there in this movie, but even they have more going on and, and both that ease and, and these subtle depths remind me of when you actually pay attention to a classic noir and you realize something really horrible is going on that you could ignore if you didn't think about it. With the big sleep. I mean, we've talked about that a few yeah. times now. And the Asian influences and the house that um, Geiger has and all that. I mean, just, yeah, the, the, the camera inside of the Buddha's face, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And just how ornate his stuff is, the, the use of the books and all this. So You know, obviously the Maltese Falcon is this artifact that's being smuggled. So there's that aspect as well that's been stolen or taken and just the use of artifacts in that way. And in this way, when it becomes apparent that that's what they're doing, because originally there was a thought that, well, what is it? Drugs, which would definitely make sense in that era where people would be interested in drugs. But this seems to be almost like, no, we're beyond drugs. Now we're into, you know, office furniture or, you know, uh, (laughs) statuary because we're now yuppies and we've moved beyond the hippie era. I think it's also interesting that they did not feel any need to conceal their their dolphin running. Like they were capturing dolphins probably illegally and selling them to people to put in their pools. And that's okay for Harry to know about. Well, how much of that was her bullshitting and how much of that was real? Yeah, it's hard to say. Because, yeah, that's one of the first times where Harry's like, I don't believe you or, you know, and just uh, her commenting about him oh being one of these guys who's concerned about the truth although in this this last viewing because i watched it two times before this and in this last one i actually think that what she's doing with harry is she's actually telling him the truth but the truth ends up being manipulative i can see that yeah I mean, she's so wry with her humor and with her delivery and everything. Jennifer Warren as Paula is the most fascinating character in the film. She is the one that I can watch every single time, and I'm always questioning, is she telling the truth or is she not, and what are her motivations? Yeah, like you see a lot of classic femme fatales, like you see someone like Barbara Stanwyck, or, um, you know, we we talked about Norma Desmond, um, Gloria Swanson. They theoretically are are fatal to any man, but Paula's only fatal to Harry. Like she wouldn't. What happened between them wouldn't necessarily happen to anyone else because of both of their very particular circumstances. And I think that's one of the differences between this and other noirs, and maybe even this and other neo noirs, because everyone in it they they all have you know like there's the Patsy and there's the detective. And there's the secret guy who's in charge of everything, who's the boss. And there's the femme fatales and the ingenue. But all of them are still really people. And so it's easy to forgive them. It's hard to really hold anything against anyone except for Ziegler. And Ziegler's evil is so over the top when he kills everyone. Though you don't really see him kill anyone on purpose. Yeah. You know, the thing with Paula does not seem like it's murder. It seems like that is an accident. Yeah. Which is probably even more tragic than anything else. The one person I think he tried to kill on purpose was um it was Harry, which is very Freudian. <laughs> Harry and then I I think Delhi as well. Yeah. Though I'm not sure I don't think Quentin was involved. You know, that seems to be the easy thing. And again, Harry, you know, immediately jumps to Quentin being the guy who set this up and everything. And, you know, what was Quentin doing under the car and all this? And, yeah, 
just another bad move, Harry. Yeah, I, th- I think actually he set Quentin off, and Quentin went to confront them about murdering Dolly and got killed himself. I talked a lot about the script on this, and if folks have a chance, I think that the script is out and available, and I'll be able to I'll post a link to uh, at least one article that makes reference to it, so people can download it because the script is wonderful. It is really tight. Uh, the dialogue it's right there, and there's just a few things that either were shot and dropped or just not shot at all. Um, there's a uh, opening that we don't see where Harry is dealing with one of his typical cases. And it's just this hilarious thing of a guy who is mad at his neighbor because his neighbor keeps setting out poison and he's worried that his dog is going to go over and eat the poison and die because the dog keeps shitting on this woman's lawn. (laughs) So Harry's just there. Like it's kind of the same thing. Like when Harry is watching that, whole scene play out with Quentin and uh, Ar- Arlene and Deli, he just kind of is standing at the side watching this stuff play out. He's kind of put these figures together. And it's the same thing with this, because at one point, the neighbors just start going at it across the street from each other, and he just kind of laughs and, and moves on. And that's the kind of case that Harry's working these days. So we get that as a little bit of a setup. We also get a little bit more of Harry and chess. We get him having a chess board in his car a few times. And his car is kind of his his uh, his safety zone, as it were. And him observing people from his car. The only other thing that... Um, really stood out for me that was different other than him going down on Paula. There's a scene where he kind of plays a friend of Ziegler's like Ziegler says, you know, you're going to be my buddy from some, from wherever. And Marv comes in, uh, Marv, the stunt man. And then they start playing football and Marv doesn't know that Harry was a former football player. Marv, knocks Harry over and then Harry just like really plows Marv right down to the ground at another point to kind of show his, you know, his skill and also to show his manliness. It's interesting to me that they removed that and then just kind of moved everything right to that bar. And we have Marv just kind of being this big blowhard talking about how great it was having sex with uh, Arlene and with Deli and how great it is to have sex with a mother and a daughter. Oh, and then they moved the, the vicious display of masculinity over to Ziegler with Ziegler slamming that poor kid's head into the table. So far, Harry gets unmanned even there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Harry just, uh, he's not a very lucky guy. And I don't think there's a better person to play that role than Gene Hackman. I mean, Gene Hackman, you know, we, we, talked about some other noirs of the era but the one that we didn't talk about was the other time that i think he's played characters named harry three times mosby i can't remember the other and then harry call of course and yeah we can't say enough good things when it comes to the conversation because and especially this whole idea of harry the investigator and harry not really existing except for the idea of needing something to investigate. And I just love that, you know, I would think that this would actually be a really good double feature with the conversation. Yeah, sometimes I think about them as almost being the same person. What's weird is I get the sense with Harry Mosby from Night Moves that he 
wants to interact and that he just, there's like a little push that he can't make where uh, Harry Call is perfectly happy doing his weird spy job and he does get sucked in eventually and he acts in a way that Harry Mosby apparently has tremendous difficulty acting. I don't, I don't know if Harry Mosby would be happier spying on people and listening to their conversations and selling their tapes because he seems to be just happy knowing and observing and not acting and finishing business and solving cases. I also find the difference between the two in that, you know, um, and I hate to spoil the end of the conversation here, so, um, you know, earmuffs if you haven't seen the conversation. Uh, they both feel to me shattered in the end. You know, mm-hmm. one quite likely could die, the other emotionally shattered. And then there's just this whole thing, once again, if you want to get back into the whole question of Watergate, one could say, okay, well, the whole listening in on conversations. And then there's also this Freudian aspect, again, with the conversation because of the last name, which is a reference, and I didn't know this, uh, until uh, I took this film analysis class when I was in uh, first or second year of college, that a call is actually like the sack that some babies are born in. So there's this whole, you know, once again, you know, if we want to talk about Freud and his sexual references or birth references or, you know, early trauma references, that's another reference, I guess. I can't remember if there's a word for an audio voyeur, but that seems to be Harry Call, whereas Harry Mosby seems to be more of a straight up voyeur. He seems like he would be okay. Yes, he wants to interact, but he definitely seems like he is very into the idea of looking and observing, not necessarily of listening in. Though, watching Night Moves again this afternoon, I noticed that there's so many conversations that are taking place almost out of earshot, especially those conversations between Ted and Paula or Deli and Paula and it's interesting just how many of those are just a little bit off screen but Harry is able to catch all of that stuff Harry being kind of our stand-in and if we're able to hear it Harry's able to hear it in that particular instance so it's neat how much is being revealed and when and I just remember the other time that um, Hackman played a Harry was when he was Harry Zim in Get Shorty. Harry Zim, don't ask for dick. Harry Zim tells you <laughs> the way it's going to be. So let's go ahead and take another break, and we're going to play a preview for next week's show. His name is Bodai. What is it? He's a who, not an it. Then who is it? Do you like air? It's not alive. Do you breathe? Where do you come from? Earth. 1,000 years in the future, out of the heavens comes a mystical and powerful force. It is called Bodai. We're going to get Bodai. Yes, we are. Unanimous. Go. The law requires that I take them to my headquarters. Only a lonely one. Are you sure about that? Take a better look. Armed with the power of the magical being Bodai, a young band of rebels is our only hope to conquer the forces of evil that would destroy the planet Earth. The magic. The mystery. The adventure. Solar Babies. 
That's right. We're talking about a movie whose title you just can't say with a straight face. We're discussing Solar Babies next week with our friend from the F This Movie podcast, Patrick Bromley. Now, before we go, I want to thank this week's special guest co-host, Carol Borden. And thank you for coming on the show, Carol. And also, folks who are not familiar with The Cultural Gutter, how do you describe it? The Cultural Gutter is a website dedicated to thoughtful writing about disreputable art. We have articles about comics, about film, about TV, uh, science fiction, and fantasy. And in the past, we've had writers about games and romance. And you can find us at www.theculturalgutter.com. Now, it's not just you writing for it, because I know that you've got uh, at least one other writer over there. How many folks do you have working with you? There's me and two other people. Uh, Keith Allison writes about science fiction and fantasy, and Alex McFadgen writes about the screen. And then we have a monthly guest star. So what are the things that uh, we can look forward to over at the Cultural Gutter? Well, we have a guest star writing about Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, um, a conversation between me and Colin Smith of Too Busy Thinking About My Comics about the Justice League and Justice League United cartoons and adaptations in general. And then I have a piece coming up at Teleport City about Kuroneko, the Kanedo Shindo movie. We haven't talked about any Shindo on this show. We should definitely talk about him one of these days. We should. If, like, if you want sort of Freudian sexualized stuff, he's a good place to start. I can never get enough Freudian sexualized stuff. Well, thanks again, Carol, for coming on the show and for all the support that you've given to the projection booth over the years. We always appreciate your retweets, your posts, all that kind of fun stuff. So we really we can't do it without folks like you. And, you know, if, if our listeners want to do the same thing, that's that's absolutely fine. We would not hesitate to allow you to go ahead and post or tweet or blog or just, you know, call up a friend and tell them about our podcast over here projection-booth.com you know we've got a lot of twitter messages lately saying you know just discovered the projection booth or hey i just heard this great episode on whatever movie that we've talked about in the past that is fantastic and it's not too late to join in the fun because we're just going to keep on making these shows until the penal system gets a less embarrassing name Talk, confused.
searching for some pine sky to summon. We were just young and restless and bored, even by the sword. So we'd steal away every chance we could to the back room, to the alley, or the trusty woods. I used her, she used me, and neither one cared. We'd get our share. We were working on our nine moves, trying to lose them. this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.